First Thessalonians chapter four, verse nine is where we're going to pick it up tonight. Last two weeks ago, not last week, because uh, we it was this it was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Uh, two weeks ago, we started chapter four and we got through the first eight verses, and and Paul was talking about holiness. He was talking about sexual purity. You know, if you remember, we talked about a lot of those things. And then he, he uh, continues on the practical living aspect of, of following Christ in, in verse 9. We're going to read that, and then we'll just, we'll just jump in and, and go from there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. This is what it says. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So Paul sort of switches gears rather suddenly here from exhorting the Thessalonian believers about, <clears throat> excuse me, about sexual purity to exhorting those who needed to work and, and not depend on others. And, 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 and he switches gears to walking in brotherly love here. And Paul, what he does here, he actually employs a figure of speech called a paralipsis. And, and the figure of speech that, that does what this particular one, what happens is the speaker pretends to skip over a subject. This is what he said, we do not need to write to you. So the speaker pretends to, to skip over a subject that he does, in fact, intend to discuss. And so he uses this. It's similar to, and probably every parent here has done this without realizing it, it's similar to a parent, you know, lecturing their teenager, uh, and, they're, and they're, you know, something else, talking about something else, and then they say something like, and we won't even mention how poor your grades have been this past semester. Well, they say we're not going to mention it, except you just mentioned it. So it's a way of bringing it up and, and letting the teenager know that you're not pleased with the situation. And so you say, I'm not going to talk about this, but by doing so, you actually brought, draw attention to that particular subject. And so that's what Paul does here. And he begins with an affirmation and then he moves to an exhortation in this situation. He, he says that he doesn't need to write to them about brotherly love because they have been taught by God to love one another. And then in the middle of verse 10, Suddenly comes the, the confrontation, the correction, the exhortation that's there. And before we get into what he talks about, I just want to just point out that this is really a good model to follow when you're dealing with constructive criticism, when you have to deal with a confrontation that needs to be made. Um, here's what I, I know in, in human nature is, and that is that our reaction to constructive criticism usually depends on how that criticism is given. So when, when someone comes to us in, you know, in negative anger and they're, or they're being sarcastic, what we tend to do is immediately we become def defensive and this whole conversation shuts down because nobody hears anything anybody said anymore. Uh, but, but on the other hand, when, when someone begins with an affirmation, what we are more likely to be open and responsive and to have a discussion about the, the situation. I, I read about a preacher who experienced both methods of confrontation at the door of his church after a service on one Sunday. And uh, after the service was done, he was standing at the door of the church, greeting people as they left. And one of the men came out and, and he was just like breathing fire over a statement that the pastor had made during the sermon. And the, and the man looked at the pastor and he said, of all the stupid things I've ever heard, what on earth did you mean by that? Well, listen, if he really wanted to know what the pastor meant by that, he's not going to get an answer to that question. Because instead, what he got was uh, a, a def defensive statement affirming the pastor's belief and the pastor's immediately trying to defend himself because it feels like an attack. But within minutes, another man approached the pastor and he said, pastor, that was... That was a most interesting and challenging sermon. I'm sure it took a lot of courage for you to say what you did, but, but what did you really mean with th by this? What a huge difference in the approach. And the pastor went to great length to clarify his position and what he was trying to say and to affirm the man in his right to disagree. And all that to say that there is no better way to 
confront or, and reprove or, uh, or deal, deal with a situation like that than by getting, beginning with an affirmation. In fact, you know, when, when I have to do a confrontation, um, I actually uh, try to use uh, an affirmation sandwich. <laughs> I, know that, I don't know if that's a real term or not, but I'll begin with an affirmation. I'll, say, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about what this person is doing, what they're doing well, and, and build them up and, and, and appreciate that about them. And then I say, but here's something we need to work on. And then when that's all done, then I close with an affirmation and saying again, thank you for doing this and this well. And so it, it makes people, tends to make people more open to correction when it needs to come. Now, I want to say this, though, uh, before we move on and talk about the content of what he wrote. Uh, when we talk about affirmation, it's very, very important to understand that affirmation is not the same thing as, as insincere flattery. Okay, Affirma flattery is di totally different. Flattery is actually self-centered when a person speaks because flattery is saying something with the intention of playing on that person's emotions to, to, to be able to get something that you want in return. That's what flattery is. You know, when, uh, when sometimes it's even as simple as you flatter somebody how they look because you want somebody to say something about how you look. And so it's not a really a sincere compliment. It's not a real affirmation. It's flattery because you're trying to get something out of it. But affirmation is genuinely recognizing God's grace in a person's life and encouraging them to, them to keep growing. Affirmation is when you truly, uh, to, to be affirmation, you have to truly be able to speak the good thing that you're talking about there and you see that in their life. But the truth is, when it comes to confrontation and dealing with conflict, we often create the climate by the way we approach the situation. And therefore, we create the response to our criticism by the, by the way we make it. So it's important for us to know if you need to confront anybody, if you need to deal with anybody, it's a great way to approach it. That was Paul's consistent pattern. He would, he consistently would, would preface criticism with heartfelt praise. Uh, to help soften that and make uh, the, the, the reader or the person more open to that. And, and when we do it, it certainly makes a thoughtful and positive response and a, and a positive interaction. It, it makes it more likely. It doesn't guarantee it because, you know, listen, some people just can't deal with any kind of criticism, even when it's helpful. And even if you try to approach it this way, they're just going to shut you down and they're not going to listen. But it does make it more likely. So let's look at what he's talking about here, because really what we're going to be talking about tonight is love, brotherly love. And, and he starts by saying that he is using that, that uh, method I mentioned earlier. He starts by saying that he doesn't need to write to the Thessalonians about brotherly love. And he uses the Greek term. Uh, this is an English transliteration of it. Philadelphia, because we know Philadelphia is the city of what? brotherly love and so it, it's comes from the root of phileos which is which is has to do with brotherly love but what's interesting in this verse he says i don't need to talk to you about phileo this brotherly love because he said god himself has been teaching these disciples to love only this time he uses the agapeo or agape love um, and so he's saying i don't need to write to you about brotherly love because God has been teaching you self-sacrificing love for one another. Uh, in reality, when you talk about learning about love, God's the only one that's really, truly, fully qualified to teach on the subject of love because love would not exist with him, without him. He's the author of love. He not only teaches us about love, but he shows us and teaches us how to love. And the Bible says uh, that, that we, we love because he first loved us and and so therefore, to begin any discussion on the subject of love, the logical starting point must be with God himself. And so these believers recognize through the teaching of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, the thing is, when you get saved, you become a child of God. You're one of the sheep, one of Jesus's sheep. He's the shepherd. And he said, my sheep know my voice. And so you, you know, you hear the voice of the Spirit a lot of times you may not recognize, may not even know it's him speaking, but, but they recognized through the teaching of the Holy Spirit that they were being called to an unconditional love that's like the love that one has for his family. 
You know, when you talk about unconditional love, you think about a mom and their love for their children or a dad and his love for, for the children. And so, uh, so he uses this phrase, this, this word to describe the kind of love that he, that he, that they're, they're exhibiting, that he says, I don't need to talk to you and teach you about this because God's already taught you to love one another. Um, what's interesting is before the New Testament writers, the, the Greek word for brotherly love, phileo, was, was used exclusively for the love of a sibling, a blood relative. It refers to the love that particularly binds together the children of one father, which is, which is one of the things that makes it so appropriate when you talk about Christian love, because we're talking about the siblings of one father. And so uh, that's how it began to be used. And, and uh, one of the things I think sometimes we think of, we think of agape love as being way up here, and then brotherly love is close, but it's down below. But I, I don't think that's the case. I don't think brotherly love should be seen as a lower form of love that falls short of the unconditional agape love that ought, ought to characterize Christians. I think what it does is it speaks more, it still talks about that an agape self-giving kind of love, but it speaks more about the relationship between the two. So when you're talking about phileo, you're talking about a love that exists between. It's, it, it really points to the fact that there is a different kind of relationship there. So, uh, you know, uh, when I talk about brotherly or sisterly love, you know, because I got a sister, so I have brotherly love for my sister. When we talk about that, uh, that's, that's, that's really pointing out the fact that I have a different relationship with her than I do with anybody else. Or, or I have a different relationship with my brothers than I do with, with any other person in the world, uh, any, other, any other guy in the world. And so I, I don't think it's lesser. I think it just points to a different type of love, a different type of relationship between that. I, I, I think what Paul is really doing here, and I think this is, will help us, he's pointing out that this unconditional love that flows between Christian brothers and sisters, this what we call brotherly love, this phileo, the, the reason it is so powerful is because it actually flows out of the agape, self-giving love of the Father. He, he said, I don't need to write to you about brotherly love because God has been teaching you agape love. In other words, you have learned this self-giving, self-sacrificing love from God and because of that, it's flowing into your relationships with your brothers and sisters. So the, the one is feeding another. Paul tells us in Romans 5, 5, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. That means I have agape love being poured into my heart by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, if it's being poured into me, it's being poured into me, not just so that I can hold it and contain it and it terminates on me, but it's so that it can be poured out on, on, uh, in love on the people around me. But specifically, when we talk about phileo and brotherly love, what I'm talking about then is that agape love of God coming, being poured into my life, and then it is then showered upon my brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's not, it's not a lesser kind of love. It's the same love being displayed in a different relationship. Does that make sense? And, and, and our capacity to love. Now, here's the thing. What he says, that God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. That means that our capacity to love others does not come by trying harder. Anybody ever here ever tried harder to love somebody? It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Now, you can try harder to serve them. You can try harder to express love, but it does not come from trying harder. But our capacity to love, love others actually comes by yielding to the Holy Spirit because He's the one that's shedding that, that love, pouring that love into our hearts. So when you yield to the Holy Spirit, He gives you the capacity to love other people. Um, he gives you to, in fact, uh, Jesus said to love your enemies. Anybody here, does that come naturally to you? Anybody here, you like to love your enemies? Does that come easy for anybody? Yeah, put your hand down. <laughs> he's got to he's pull these. Anyway, but, but, but the reason we can do that is not because we try harder to love our enemies. It's because God pours His love into our hearts 
And that's the kind of love that already loves enemies. Because we were enemies of, of God when Christ died for us. So that means then I can then, as I draw closer to Him, as I yield to the Spirit more and more, it makes it where I have a greater capacity to love those around me. And when we struggle with the ability to love others, the real question that we should ask is, is does God's Spirit dwell in me? Is there something going on in my relationship with God that's stopping me from, from doing this? Um, because our capacity to love others uh, will reveal much about our hearts since genuine love is a reflection of God's presence in us. It's about the nature of God. He is love. If He's in us and He's pouring that love in us, then it should show up in our lives in the way we treat one another, especially, and the Bible teaches us, especially when you're talking about the love we have for brothers and sisters in Christ. Warren Wiersbe wrote this. This is what he, how he described it. And I think this is really, really good. Fish do not attend classes to learn how to swim. They do go to school, though. <laughs> That's a different... Sorry. Uh, let me go back and start over again. Just delete the bad dad joke in your brain if you can. Fish do not attend classes to learn how to swim. And birds, by nature, put out their wings and flap, flap them in order to fly. It is nature that determines action. Because a Christian has God's nature, he loves because God is love. That's the whole idea behind this, is that, is that these people, these Thessalonian believers, were growing and they were loving one another, and Paul didn't have to teach that. That's because that's the nature of a person who follows Christ. And First Peter tells us that, the, that God has put the, his nature within us. So, uh, and, and when we talk about God's love, God's love, agape, and by the way, it's, that's a word that was rarely used in any kind of Greek literature and, until the New Testament, and it became used. It's really all, uh, not used anywhere else other than the New Testament, uh, uh, and it, be, it was a word that they began to use to describe God's love, but it's a love that meets the needs of people, uh, of other people around, regardless of the relationship and regardless of the personal cost. I say regardless of the relationship because... Well, what Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. So he, that's the kind of love that loves regardless of the relationship, but also it loves regardless of the personal cost because it costs Jesus his, his life. It, it, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave what? His only son, his one and only son. And so... You know, before we were ever adopted into the family of God, He loved us before we were ever adopted, before you were even a, a, a you know, a glint in your father's eye. You know, He loved you with a self-giving, self-sacrificing love that reached out and, and that love reached out and gave us not what we wanted, but what we really needed, a savior. Uh, Christian love, when we talk about it, we understand that God pours his love in our hearts and that means that we reflect it and we love one another as a result of that. That means that Christian love, loving our brothers and sisters is, is not only expressed by showing respect. I mean, we should, you know, we, you don't love, you don't disrespect people that you love, right? I mean, I hope you understand that, but it's more than that. Christian love is also expressed through self-sacrifice and through servanthood. My, the, my love for you must show up in, in me being willing to, willing to put you first and to meet your needs before me and my willingness to serve you. That's Christian love. And it can be defined as, as selfless giving that reaches beyond friends and even reaches to enemies and persecutors. Matthew chapter 5 Verse 43, Jesus is speaking. He said, you have heard it said, heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and, and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. 
Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, if we're going to become like Christ, the more like Christ that we become, the more we will love the people around us. The more selfless we will be in that way. And in fact, love should be the, uh, the unifying force and the identifying mark of the Christian community. In other words, let me say the first part, the unifying force. Love is what holds us together. Love is what keeps us together. Has, has anybody here ever had another Christian in, in the church uh, say or do something that hurt your feelings? Let me, anybody ever had that happen in your, in your lifetime? Yeah. Well, why didn't you just bail on, on the church? Because your love goes beyond the, the, the offense. And, and, and the love became a unifying force that held, holds us together, even in those moments when we do things that are hurtful, even when, when we disagree on things, it still holds us together. Love is that unifying force that keeps us together. But it's also the identifying mark of the Christian community. What did Jesus say? He said in John 13, 35, By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. He didn't, he didn't say, they're going to know you're my disciples if you have great doctrine. Now, you should have, you know, be great. It's, it's good to have good theology. But that's not what marks us for the world. He didn't say, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you have wonderful church buildings. Well, it's, it's great. I mean, I'm glad we have a roof over our head. We're not sitting out in the cold tonight. But that's not what it says. In fact, he doesn't even say, by this, all men will know you're my disciples if you, if you listen to really good sermons. No, it's not the sermons that... He says, by this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another. And, and, and that means that the way we interact, the selfless love that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ serves as a, as a tool to reveal Christ to the world outside of, out of, outside of the church. Because listen, I'm here to tell you. And now, not every church is, is healthy. You know, in their, our church, there, there are areas that we need to get healthier. We need to do better. But here's the thing about the church. I, I think it was Bill Hybels that first said this. He said, there's nothing like the church when the church is working right. There's nothing, there is no place in the world that you can go to to find the kind of love that the church has for, for, for the uh, fellow believers in Christ uh, when the church is letting that love of God flow. There's no place like it. You know, the close, honestly, the closest place that a lot of people get in the world is going to the bar. You know, I mean, like that old, the old TV show Cheers. You know, where the song says everybody wants to go where everybody knows your name, you know, and, and, and they're always glad you came, this sort of thing. That's the closest they can get to it. And it's artificial. It's artificial. And a lot of the good feelings that flow there, it's just from the alcohol flowing and it's temporary. That's the closest they can come. But this is different. And what happens is when the church is functioning the way that God created the church to function, when we are loving, first of all, loving one another the way Christ wants us to love one another, people on the outside of the church look in that and they say, I don't have anything like that in my life. I don't have anybody that, that, uh, that loves me. I mean, maybe, maybe I can look at my family and say, yeah, they love me pretty unconditionally, but 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 to have people from different backgrounds and and different uh, interests and the, just as different as night and day who, who, who love one another, the world looks at that when it's working, when it's happening, and they say, man, there is something different there. That's not normal. Now, the truth is, it is normal because that's the way God created it to be. The rest of the world is what's abnormal. It kind of reminds me of uh, when I was pastoring the church in Reno, Nevada, I'm not, I'm going to make this story much shorter, which is really hard for a preacher to do, but I'm going to do my best. But I, I can remember there was a, a young man in the community, very, very popular, uh, who was in an ATV accident and, and, uh, had severe brain injury. Long story short, 
I was going down, he was in the intensive care unit. I was going down there every day and he was in a, involved in a community, sort of an underground rock community. And, and there was some, there were people coming there and, and big crowds in the ICU um, that, uh, <laughs> uh, let's just say a lot of these people, had, some of them had tattoos in places I didn't even know there were places, you know, and piercings everywhere. And, and they were, they were a rough crowd. Uh, uh, I have a story I'll, t- I'll have to tell you another time. I can't tell it <laughs> from the pulpit, uh, but of a time when I was praying with them and their reaction to it. But, but long story short, through that time, as I was going down there and visiting them and getting to know some of them, uh, God somehow just gave me favor with them. That, and sometimes God just does that. He just gives you favor because we had nothing here. I'm, I mean, I was a 40 something year old white guy, you know, uh, with no tattoos, just as plain Jane as can be. And you got all these guys here that, I mean, it, it, outside in another, any other situation, I'd have been scared to death of them, frankly. That's just the way it was. But he gave me favor with them. And as a result, uh, through that process, some of those, some of those people got saved and then some of them came to church. And, um, and I, I was worried because I knew some of them said, we're going to be there Sunday. And I was a little worried because I didn't know, you know, you just don't know how people are going to re- react. And, uh, and I remember there was one couple in the church, precious, precious couple. He was actually the founding pastor of the church and his wife. Um, they had been retired many, many years. But can I just say this? And I'm, I mean, I don't mean this in a negative way, but she was old school. You know what I'm saying? Old school Pentecostal. All right. And some of these people came in and they sat down and I watched as this old school elderly Pentecostal lady was the first person to walk up, greet these people, and then sat down next to them and befriended them and and talked to them and was there and loved on them the whole service. That does not happen outside the church. It's, it's Christ that pulls us all together. And, and so uh, all, all that to say that, that the, the key to walking in the light uh, is love because we, we can't grow spiritually while we hate others. And, and it's this whole idea of, uh, uh, get back to what I was trying to say, is that that love is what becomes like a beacon of light shining in the darkened, darkened world. And that kind of love that people see us and say, okay, they must be Christian. That's the only place I've ever seen that kind of love. Um, and, and, and we have to walk in love if we're going to walk in light. Uh, in fact, if you claim to be a lover of God and you don't have love for your brothers, then according to First uh, John, then you are a liar and you're deceiving yourself. First John 4.20, listen to what he said. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother... He is a liar. That's pretty straightforward. You know, he's not saying, oh, he's just not quite right. He's not there. He says, no, he's lying. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. He's saying it's flat out impossible. If I can't love you when I can see you, how in the world am I going to say I have love for God whom I cannot see? It's impossible. Well, anyway, these believers in Thessalonica, God had taught these believers uh, and that, that means with the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives comes this inward teaching. The Holy Spirit is the one who leads us and guides us into all truth. John 16, 13, Jesus said, but when he, the, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, now here's the question, because a lot of people have said, all I need is the Holy Spirit. So th- th- does that mean then that we shouldn't listen to human teachers? Well, I hope not, since I'm up here. In fact, I think that's absolutely false because God is the one who ordained human teachers. Ephesians 4.11, it was he, speaking of Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. So he has placed teachers in the church. So it's not that we say, well, I don't need anybody to teach me. 
It's that we learn from those that are a little further on down the road from us. And, and God gives the church the gift of certain people to teach or to preach or to pastor or evangelist, whatever these things are. And what happens is then the Holy Spirit is the one who confirms the truth of what a teacher says. How does he do that? He confirms that through the word of God. And which is, which is why it's so important for us to get into the word and to know the word. And, and really more than that, I like saying it this way. It's not so much that we need to get into the word. It's that we need to get the word into us. Uh, Acts 17, 11 says this. This is actually right after Paul's visit to Thessalonica. He said, now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness. And here's what made them more noble. And they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So the Holy Spirit, you get into the word, the Holy Spirit will confirm. If I, if I teach something that is biblical, when you get into the word, the Holy Spirit will say, see, there it is. And it will, and he will lead you into that. Now, the flip side of that is, especially when you know the word, when you hear somebody teaching something that they've got this quote unquote new revelation, which, which I'm always a little dubious about that, frankly, because, uh, I mean, God's given us a revelation that a lot of us aren't paying attention to already, <laughs> but that's a different story. But, but if you hear something new and you're like, yeah, something just doesn't sit right. That could very well be the Holy Spirit saying, go look at the scripture, see if what you're saying is true. And if it's not true, then you're able to, to, to refuse that. But the Thessalonian believers did not need instruction about showing God's love. But Paul urged them forward. Verse 10, he said, And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So their love was not even just in their local congregation. They said, man, he, he said, you, you are doing a great job of loving even people in other cities, Christians in other cities who are following the same Christ as you. So he said, you, you love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers to do so more and more. Although their love was already strong, not only among themselves, but also toward all the Christians in Macedonia, Paul begged them to love each other more and more. In other words, grow in this. You're doing a great job. You are loving well, but don't sit back and say that's enough. Grow in this. There, there's always more to learn about love. There's always more depth to be plumbed and always more ways to show love. And, and that teaches us that love or, or loving a person is not an end in itself. It's not something that we do and then we're done and we say, okay, now I love you. But it is a continual process in our lives because love is very much associated with our sanctification. Now, again, we, we've used that word before. It's a big word that talks about the process of, of the Holy Spirit making us holy, making us more like Christ. That's the bottom line. And when we think about that, we often think about making us more like Christ where we have less sin in our lives and we're more godly, and that's true. But think about this. Becoming more like Christ also means that I'm going to be growing in more love because Christ is love. So it's very closely related to that. It's this continual process. And a growing relationship with God will always result in growing relationships with others. The more I, I have his love pouring into me, the more love will be pouring out of me. Uh, uh, love, love is not an item to be checked off of our daily to-do list. You know, it's not like you say, okay, I, I love my spouse today. Now I can move on, right? Or, or you don't say, I just finished showing love to my friend today. Uh, I'll be back to do it again tomorrow. No, no, loving is an ongoing activity. It's really more of a pursuit that we're continually chasing after the, the, the ability and the capacity to love other people around us. And because we're progressing continuously in our personal sanctification, because we're becoming more like Christ every single day and we're pressing into the word and we're, and we're, he's changing us, that means that our love will always be growing. And, and we understand this. We really do. Uh, I've, you know, I've talked with many couples that were married for 50 years. And they'll say things like, and I would say this is true for me. I haven't been married 50 years yet, but 
we, we've been married 33, better than 33 years. And, and here's what I would say. When I married Julie, I thought I loved her. And I did. I loved her to the fullest extent that I could. But after 33 years, huh, no, what I have for her in my heart now is so much greater, so much bigger, that I look back and say, oh, you only thought you knew what love was. And I, and I really think that should, should the Lord give us another 15, 30 years, you know, I'll be, be getting up there by then, that I'm going to look back at this point and I'm going to say, you, you fool, you only thought you knew what love was because it just keeps growing. It just keeps growing. Um, and that's the way it is in our walk with Jesus and in our relationships with people in the church. If my love for other Christians and for the church is not growing, that is a signal to me that something is not right in my relationship to God. Because if this is right, it makes this right. If this is growing, this is growing. But if this is not growing, problem means that I'm not growing this way either. Um, I think an important lesson for us to learn in this verse, when we talk about, you know, that love is something we continually pursue the rest of our lives. And that is that we, we never give in the, into the temptation to rest on our laurels. We never say, oh, I have loved people well, now I'm just going to relax. Or what, whatever. And you can apply it to any other area, not just love, but uh, you know, any success, any victory you have in your life. But, but in fact, we have to forget the past. Uh, you know, Paul said, uh, and I don't have this verse out, but Paul said uh, that he, he presses on to grab hold of that for which Christ Jesus uh, grabbed hold of him. Philippians, in Philippians, he talks about this. And, and he says, he says, I forget the past. I leave the past behind. What, the, what does that mean? It doesn't, I mean? He doesn't like wipe it from his brain where it's like, oh, it's gone. I don't remember yesterday. What he means is I don't give the past any time or attention. I don't waste my time or my energy thinking about what's in the past. But here's the thing about it. The things that Paul had in his past, at least in the religious world, were very powerful and positive things. Yeah, he was leaving behind the fact that he used to persecute the church and not wasting time and with guilt on that. But he's also thinking back to all of his great accomplishments. And he's saying, I'm not going to waste my time thinking about all the good things I've done in the past either. We have to even leave our victories behind. Now, we remember them in the sense that they give us hope and they give us faith and help us to build upon that faith for tomorrow. But I can't live in the victories of two weeks ago. Because I need, I need something from God today. I, I can't, I've got to keep growing. And so I leave even my victories behind and I keep moving forward toward the calling of God in my life. And I keep uh, trying to grow in my relationship with Him and growing in my, in my love for one another. Uh, but, but I cannot ever reach the point where I look back and say, I have done so much, whether good or bad. I'm not, I just can't waste my time thinking about yesterday can't waste my energy on that because if i'm focusing on that then i'm missing out on what god's got, trying to bring next because god's always got something next he's always got something next the thessalonians had flourished in christian love but paul was insistent that they had to continue to move forward and keep working at it let's look at verse 11 because now he said to them, you need to keep loving. I want you to do it more and more. Now he's going to tell us how to lead a life of brotherly love. And he's going to really apply it to a very specific situation in the church there. Let's read it. Verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So what's happening? Some of the Thessalonian Christians had, ad had adopted a lifestyle of idleness and depending on others uh, around them for, for handouts. Now, why in the world 
would they do that? Why would some of these believers begin to live a life of idleness? Well, he's not specific here, but there are really two schools of thought. And I think one of them, because you take it in the context of what he teaches on next, which we'll get to next week, I think what had happened most likely is this arose out of speculations concerning the second coming of Christ. They had learned very well that the Lord would be returning, and evidently they believed that it would be very, very soon. And some of them, apparently what happened, some of them probably felt that there was, hey, if Jesus is coming back and he's coming back very soon, then there's no point in continuing going to work every day. What's the point of that? Why, am I, why would I do that if Jesus is coming back at any time? So some evidently felt that it was much more important to be about the business of proclaiming the near end of the world. But what they didn't realize that is that when we don't take care of our day-to-day responsibilities, what we are doing is we actually harm the reputation of Christ among the very people we're trying to reach. So if we say, I'm not going to work, and, and this ties into this whole thing of brotherly love because I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but they're not working, but how are they eating? They're depending on their brothers and sisters in Christ who have brotherly love and they're, and they're the ones that are taking care of them and feeding them. And they've become a sponge on some of these other people in the church. And so uh, e- even though their motivation may have been pure, their actions hindered the very thing for which their hearts longed. They wanted Maybe they said, Jesus is coming. We can't waste time going to work. We gotta be, we gotta tell people about Jesus. We gotta get as many saved as possible. That motivation is great, but by, but by sponging off of other people and by, uh, freeloading and, and depending on other people and not being willing to work themselves, what was happening was people said, well, I'm no, I'm not gonna listen to this guy. He won't even go to work. He's a bum. Why would I listen to him talking about his religion? I don't want to be like that. And so uh, this eager anticipation for the return of Christ was admirable, but failing to live faithfully was uh, until he returned was not. Uh, So the Thessalonians needed a firm reminder that that the gospel, and this is such a powerful statement, the gospel is only as believable as the changed lives of those who proclaim it. So if I say Jesus saves but I live my life without letting him transform me, nobody's going to believe because they're going to say, well, Jesus didn't change him much. The the, the lifestyle of idleness in these believers' lives did not show love for their fellow believers, but they were counting on the love of those believers to sustain them. And, And they were taking advantage of those other people's hard work. That's why it was, it was not love. You know, if, if I'm dep- unwilling to work, you know, and I'm depending on Sam to, to feed me, I'm not showing love toward him. You know, all I'm doing is putting a bigger burden on his life. Um, and, and so Paul reminds the Thessalonians that while brotherly love is important and it was something that, uh, the, at which they already excel, he was trying to make a point. It's not something to be taken advantage of. You don't take advantage of those you love. Just because they love you and they're willing to, to, uh, to serve you and they're willing to feed you, he says, you should love them enough to not put them in that position. That's in, in, in essence what he's saying. And, and not only he says uh, that, that, the, that Paul and his fellow missionaries had not only impressed them, he told them about the need to, to continue to work and earn their own living, but Paul, if you remember, had shown them as, as uh, this very thing in, as a practical example because Paul had worked as a tent maker while he was preaching in Thessalonica specifically so that he would not be a burden to anyone. So he not only taught them, but he lived it and gave them examples saying, this is how you should live. And yet there were some members of the church who were ignoring both the teaching and the example of Paul. Those who were behaving in this way were not only being burdensome, burdensome uh, to their fellow Christians, but, but they were also incurring a bad reputation among non-Christians, uh, not, only, not only for themselves, because listen, if, if I'm not willing to work, if I'm a bum and I won't work, I'm, I'm not only bringing a bad reputation to myself, but what was happening, it was also bringing a bad reputation to this church, to the to Christian faith, because this was new. This is, 
as far as as far as everybody else knew, when they looked at this, these people, they were like, well, that's what it's supposed to be like. And everybody was like, hey, that's not good. Here's, here's what we have to understand. This is such a powerful principle. Everything we do sends a message to the world about what we believe about God. Including our work. From our words to our work, we are accountable to God for how we live. And if our faith is real on Sunday at church, then it will be just as real on Monday in the office. It's going to show up there. We, we would do well to remember that how we work at our jobs says much about how we view our faith. That's a really, that's a, that's a loaded statement when you begin to think about it. But what happens is, and we've talked about this some in the past, Many Christians compartmentalize their faith. They, they may see Christianity as sort of a part of their life, but they, but they fail to acknowledge that their faith in Christ is not a part of their life. It is the heart of their life. And by, by viewing life in this way, they, they miss the entire point of their faith because the entire point of my faith is not just that I get to go to heaven, but that Christ would be glorified in me and through me even in what in my work patterns and what I do in the workplace. Jesus is not part of your life. Jesus is your life. And by acknowledging this truth, you'll no longer be able to no longer see Jesus as part of your workday. Instead, you will see him as the one who sets the agenda for your workday. You'll no longer see him as part of your school day if you're a student, but you'll see him as the one who sets the agenda for how you study. You'll no longer see him as part of your daily schedule. You know, I got my devotional time here. That's my time with God. And he's not going to be part of your daily schedule. Instead, you'll see him as the one who sets the agenda for how you schedule your entire day. And the fact that Paul saw the need to address the irresponsible behavior of some of these Thessalonians clearly indicates that their poor testimony was adversely affecting the ministry of the church and the integrity of the gospel. In fact, what did he say? Let me read the last part. He said, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. In other words, he's saying the way you're living now, you're not winning respect from anybody. You need to live this way to earn the respect. In, in a way, it's you're earning the right to be heard. It's a big part of what, what, what he's talking about here. Um, let me find my place here. I, I, I moved my papers and now I got to figure out where I am. So Paul focused them. He, he, the, uh, in response to this, he exhorted them to focus their ambition. This is a very interesting combination. Focus their ambition on leading a quiet life. Because when we think of ambition, we don't usually think of quietness. Right? Which, by the way, I just want everybody to understand. Ambition is not a bad thing. What does the Bible talk about? The Bible condemns selfish ambition. But I can have godly ambition. And here's an ambition that Paul says we should have, that we should focus our ambition on leading a quiet life. Now, here's the thing. You know, some of you in this room, and I'm not going to mention any names, Sam, like to talk. <laughs> but, but when he talks about quiet, the word translated quiet here. He's, he's referring to a state of being much more than an absence of words. So when he says a quiet life, he doesn't mean hold your tongue. That's not really what he's talking about. He, he, Christians have to make it their ambition to live in a way that they project a quiet confidence in the God they serve. You know, and, and, and they're not worrying about or chasing after all the things that the world worries about and the world is chasing after. So it's a quietness in your being. It's a, it's a stillness in your heart. It's a peace of God that passes understanding that I, th I think that's what he's talking about. And so he says, make it your ambition to live that kind of life that, that just goes about life, does what you're supposed, to, you're supposed to do and you take care of business and you do what you're the right thing and you go to work and you, and you work hard and you do what's right at work and you come home and you serve your family well. And that's the kind of life he's talking about. And he instructed them to mind their own business rather than meddling in other people's businesses. Yeah, I mean, how many of you ever known somebody you'd like to quote this verse to? <laughs> don't raise your hand. Don't point any fingers or anything. But uh, here's the thing. A person who minds 
his own business, has little time to meddle in the affairs of others. And, and Paul clearly has in mind those who had quit their jobs in anticipation of Christ's return because with, with too much time on their hands, they were needlessly interjecting themselves into the business of others. So instead of going to work and taking care of things and being occupied there, they had time to think and, and get, get meddling and start saying, hey, you know what you ought to do? <laughs> just, you know, and just really getting in other people's business. And it, it, maybe, maybe they were even more than that. Maybe they, were, maybe they were actually criticizing those who were working and at their job instead of giving all their time to evangelism. Maybe they've had some spiritual pride going on and they're like, and they're like, man, I can't believe you're working. Jesus is coming. What's wrong with you? Don't you love Jesus? You should quit and, and, and start evangelizing. Well, what they didn't understand, if, they, if that was their attitude, what they didn't understand was their work was their evangelism. It was working and working hard that gave them a platform to tell those other employees about Jesus. So uh, you know, there's, a, there's a great difference between the Christian duty of putting the interest of others before your own and the busybody's compulsive itch to put other people right. So, you know, there's a, the right thing is to say, I'm going to put your needs ahead of mine. But the busybody will instead say, uh, it's not about putting your needs in front of mine. It's just, I just want to know what's going on in your life. And, and, and Paul instructed them, because they had too much time in their meddling, he said, you need to work with your hands. You need to get to work. You need to go to work. He, he wanted the believers to be involved in honest labor so that they could win the respect of outsiders and that they would not have to be dependent on others. That's his message here. Because people who lead a quiet life, who mind their own business, and who work with their hands, and, and when we say work with their hands, I'm not talking about, you know, like if you have an office job and you work with your brain, that's, that's okay. That's, he's just saying you, 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 you go to work and do what you need to do. It's those people that provide the material out of which genuine Christian community is shaped. I, I want to I close with, with a story and then uh, three points and then we'll be done. Uh, Ron uh, Hutchcraft, I don't know who it is, but I just read a story uh, about him. He tells a story about meeting a woman from his church and, and apparently it was a big church, so he didn't know everybody. And, and upon greeting her, he asked this woman, he said, what do you do for a living? And with a huge grin, she replied, Pastor, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a machine operator. That woman clearly understood that her faith meant something. She got it. She understood what Paul was saying here. It was that she's a disciple of Christ first, but, but it was going to work that really made her, uh, gave her the opportunity to share faith. Paul, Paul didn't want the Thessalonians to forget that faith really mattered. He taught them that their Christianity should show up in their most basic aspects of their lives, including the relationships and in their jobs. God did not save them to sit around and wait for heaven. Yes, heaven is our home, but you weren't saved to just sit around and wait for, for heaven. Heaven is our home, but our city is our mission field. And it's true for us. If, we, if we're looking for a practical way we can take the gospel to people in, their, in our lives, whether it's work or school or wherever it might be, we have to live out externally what Jesus has already done for us internally. In other words, we have got to live this faith out. It's got to be more than words. It's got to be how we live. And here's how we can do this. I'm going to give you three things. And if you're taking notes, write these three things down. Because these, these, this is what Paul taught right here. Number one, love others genuinely. I'm not talking about just in the church, but when you go to work, love your coworkers genuinely. And if you don't love them, take them to God, begin to pray for them. Because listen, when you pray for other people, they may or may not change depending on how they respond to God. But I guarantee this, you will change. It's impossible to hold a grudge against someone for whom you are diligently praying. So, so love others genuinely. 
And we will never love others the way we should until we first love God for who He is. Remember, where does brotherly love come from? Comes from, come from it comes, it flows out of the love of God. So that means then, if I need to love others genuinely, concentrate on the depth of your walk with Him and watch how He increases the breadth of your love for others. It's not because you're going to be trying harder but it's going to be because you are yielding to God's spirit. Number two, number one is love others genuinely. Number two, do your work diligently. Do your work diligently. If you're a student, that means you study diligently. If you work in a workplace, whatever you do, do it to the best of your ability. Uh, Let us do our work for the approval of God. All that I do should be for Him. And when I do that, when I learn to live that way, then I'm going to be set free from the tyranny of seeking the approval of others. I don't know about you, but I like other people to like me. And if I'm not careful, that can become something that controls my life and how I act. But if I'm working to please God and not them, Now, whatever he wants is going to control my life instead of them. I'm not going to be trying to figure out, well, will this make them happy? Will they like this? Because you'll never, you'll get it wrong. You will, I'm just telling you. Instead, I focus on him. Remember that how you work matters to God. And don't spend your time worrying about what everyone else is doing. Focus instead on pleasing the Father in the exact place where he has placed you. Number three, so love others genuinely, do your work diligently. And number three, live your life purposefully. Live your life purposefully. In other words, realize your life, your everyday walking around life, going to work, going shopping, grocery shopping, spending you know half your paycheck on groceries because that's what it costs now to feed your family. All of that, your regular life, Your life is a platform from which you share the gospel. And the foundation of that platform is your credibility as a Christian. So I realize my life has purpose. And if my purpose is to share the gospel uh, through that platform of work, wherever I shop, wherever I go, whatever these, if my life is that platform, then underpinning that is the credibility, my credibility as a Christian, which means if I'm not doing my best, I'm, I'm eroding my credibility and people will be less likely to, to listen. A genuine love coupled with a diligent work ethic will create open doors for you to share with others what Christ has done for you. I'm telling you it will. Living out your faith involves more than just loving others and more than just working hard. But it means giving your life to love and to serve others for the purpose of proclaiming His glorious gospel. This is how we make our lives count, even at work. Amen. Would you bow your head together with me and pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the call to love others. But Lord, we also are so grateful that it's not about us trying to love each other and trying harder, but God, it's just simply about learning to yield to your spirit and drawing closer to you. And that as you change us, you fill us with your love and that love then can begin to flow out of us and to touch the lives around us, beginning with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but but Lord, also going past that to where we're loving our enemies and we're loving those who persecute us and we live our love our co-workers who are far from God and Lord as we do these things as we work diligently as we as we do all that we do for your glory Lord we we just thank you that that opens doors as we love people and we live the way you call us to live that we can then proclaim from that platform about the the Christ who has changed our lives so Lord help us to live this way help us to love people genuinely and Lord, uh, if, we're not, if we're not growing in that area, help us to refocus our relationship with you and begin to, to grow so that we can love them, really love them. 
Lord, I pray that you, you, would, you would help us to live our lives purposefully and that we would work diligently at, our, at whatever you've called us to do. Wherever you've planted us, God, help us to do our very best, not so that we can impress other people, but so that we can please you. And Lord, we just pray that in all of that, in all the, the mundaneness of that, in all the everydayness of that, that you would make Christ known in us and through us. We pray all of it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.